Hello, Spookies, and welcome to Rick or Treat HorrorCast, hosted by yours, ghoulie, Ricky J. Duarte. This week's guest is a fucking cool writer and director, one of the incredible filmmakers I met at the New York City Horror Film Festival, where his short film, Annihilator, completely blew me and the audience away. It won the audience choice for Best Short and Best Music at Scum Dance, Best Director at Knoxville Horror, and played at Vancouver Horror Show, Nightmares Film Festival, Unnamed Footage Festival, and Portland Horror Film Festival. Welcome to the pod, Kyle Mangione smith Hello. Hey. How's it going? Oh, man, I'm doing really well. I'm, 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 how are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited and happy to have you here on the podcast. You have no idea. I'm excited to be here. This is uh, this is the first time I've really gotten to like sit down and talk about this this film at length with anyone on the record. So, well, it, it's actually fun. my first time also because I had never seen this film <laughs> before this week. Uh, I'm kind of on a roll here lately. Of last episode, The Prowler was recommended to me, and I'd never seen that. And uh, I think you are the third guest I've had that brought me a film I'd never seen. Because back in October, I did Ghost Watch, the BBC docu broadcast mock documentary film from. It's a classic. Oh man, I'd never seen it before. It actually scared the hell out of me. Oh yeah, it, it holds up astoundingly well. Seriously, does I didn't think it was going to get me, and it did but before we get to the film that we're going to talk about i would love to talk about you and let my listeners get to know you a little bit listen you have an incredible voice as a filmmaker and i'd love to kind of talk about the recent upsurge in queer horror filmmakers who are making actual queer horror movies what does that feel like for you i mean i think it's exciting you know i i think for me especially with this project and we talked about this a little bit in, in New York, but part of it was um, I wanted to, to make like an explicitly gay horror movie that wasn't really like anything else I ever seen. Cause there, there has definitely been, you know, an uptake in them in recent years, but I, I kind of wanted to like push the envelope of like where that could go and what that aesthetic could look like. Um, so, yeah. It absolutely did. Annihilator is a visceral and relentless attack on the senses. And I was sitting there. It was part of a a block of short films. And I was completely blown away by what I was looking at. And I even talked to you immediately after that block. And, you know, I was like, this is clear. Like, this is about the queer experience. And, you know, we we instantly had a connection about that. And I I was curious just to feel the people around me and what their reaction was to it. What were they picking up on? How did they feel about it? And what I really love about it is that like, there are tones in this film. There are themes in this short that are so specific to the queer experience that I almost wonder, like it, 
what I appreciate about it is that it's not for them, like mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> for me, like that was my interpretation, and I, I thought that was really incredible to use. Um, you there's a kind of a trigger warning at the beginning of the film about uh, flashing lights, and then uh, the audience is instructed to play this film loud. Can you talk about the choice to utilize kind of louder than usual sound and extreme strobe lighting, and where that came from? I mean, I'm I'm a filmmaker that like uh, I. I'm really, really motivated and inspired by the fact that cinema can really be like an experience like that for your your senses and something that you physically feel in your body. Um, I mean, my favorite movie of all time is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's the thing that I consistently come back to with that movie it's it's the way like the imagery and the use of sound takes what is really like a a very thin narrative and just turns it into like this absolutely harrowing experience um so i i wanted to make something where like the the narrative was reflected in in the use of sound and the use of imagery um and I mean, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but the narrative itself is really intense and extreme. And I kind of wanted to express that through the the form of the thing itself. And you did so very successfully. It's beautifully shot. It's gorgeously, you know, the color and the lighting is, is fucking wonderful. Your upcoming feature uh, that mm-hmm. you will be working on, you described it as a found footage film, right? Yes. What is it about found footage? Because that's also the movie we're talking about today. What is it about the genre that drew you to make this your first feature? Um, well, I, I think there's a few things. On the most base level, um, as a independent DIY filmmaker, the one thing that's phenomenal about found footage is it's just exponentially less expensive to do than like a standard narrative piece or like how I shot Annihilator. Um, so, I mean, part of it is just the fact that I know I can, I can create it and save an like ridiculous amount of money on gear and, and whatnot. But beyond that, I also just, I love found footage horror. I'm a big defender of it. I know for years it's kind of been like a, a shunned subgenre. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, I feel like just in the last like three or four years in particular, there has been this new crop of filmmakers that not only like grew up with found footage horror, but also grew up on the internet with this technology, like as a, normal integrated part of their life mm. um i think you're seeing people approaching the subgenre in a new way now like i mean i think uh we're all going to the world's fair is a great example of that yeah absolutely um, yeah i don't know because uh there is a lot of instances of people using found footage basically as a gimmick um or studios using it again to just save money mm-hmm. um but there is a lot of territory there that I don't think has been explored 
if you think of it from the perspective of how do we actually relate to this technology and, and how does it inform how we see the world or how the world sees us. Um, so that was kind of the perspective that I, I came at this current project with. That's a really great approach to it as well. I think the movie we're going to talk about impressively does that, which we'll talk about when we get there. What is there anything that you can tell us about kind of a premise or, or anything about your feature? Yeah, so, so okay um, if not. <laughs> I, I can I can give you some information. Um, I'm actually so I'm about to go public with uh, like a crowdfunding campaign. Um, which will have a bunch of information regarding it. Um, kind of what I covered in there, like is just the basic plot beats. Um, essentially the film is centered around this fictional tech company and this new hire at it, Sam, who has to basically help cover up this, this massive scandal that they had on the eve of a, really major landmark deal. Um, the idea is she has, you know, a matter of maybe 72 hours, give or take, to put away this really horrific controversy so that this deal can go through. Um, however, as she starts looking into the details of the case and investigating it, it becomes really obvious really quickly that there's a lot more going on than what it appears on the surface. Um, and she pretty rapidly gets caught up in this uh, really like shady underground crime organization. Um, and uh, specifically the way that the, the found footage element comes into it is I'm, I'm kind of trying to approach it in a way that I haven't seen a lot of filmmakers do before. Um, so instead of having the whole thing shot through like a handheld camera or like first person point of view, um, the majority of it is going to be shown through surveillance cameras. Mm -hmm. um, and going back to the narrative, part of the idea there is this crime organization that she gets caught up with. Um, you're watching the whole thing from their perspective. So it's, it's like an explicitly voyeuristic thing um, where you're watching them execute this plan that they're, they're figuring her into through the perspective of how they're like witnessing it themselves. Cool. Um, so it's a little bit different from like, you know, wreck or Blair Witch Project or, most of the entries in the genre um but yeah that's kind of a general overview i love this uh, how and when and where can listeners get involved in this crowdfunding so i think the campaign should be up within the next week or so and it'll run through february um if you google my name and then compliance which is the title of the film uh it should pop up um i'm also on instagram if you go to uh sosa goth that's s-o-s-a goth um and i will be posting about it throughout the entirety of the month um so yeah 
check it out. I think I'm, I'm super excited about it. I feel great about the script. I feel great about the cast I have so far. I really feel like if I can kind of pull things together in the way I'm hoping it will be uh, a really, really crazy project. <laughs> I mean, I have every confidence in you and I hardly know you, but just based on your short annihilator, like, I cannot wait to see what you're capable of. Where are, are my listeners able to uh, check out Annihilator anywhere? Yeah. So actually going back to the crowdfunding campaign, um, I'm forgetting what, which of the tiers it is. I think it's, it's one of the really low ones, like 15 or 20. Um, if you contribute $20, uh, you will get a screener for Annihilator. That's um, actually really brilliant. That's a great way to do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I had another filmmaker friend that did that and it was very successful for them. But, you know, I wanted to put it like at a really low tier because I want people to watch the film. And of course, later on after the campaign, I don't know, after a few months, it will also be public. But if you want to watch it right now, that's how you can do it. <laughs> Fuck yeah, get ahead of it. I can't recommend it enough. It really was like a um, just a, a changing experience for me. And uh, actually, so I'll kind of I'll kind of explain why uh, I really like to make recommendations on recent horror that we have consumed media. So video games or books, movies, music, etc. And I normally let my guests go first, but I'm going to go first this time because it has to do with you. Um, okay. I'll try to make this a brief story. I went to, uh, I had jury duty and I didn't bring a book. So on lunch, I went to a mystery bookstore and asked the man who worked there, do you have any uh, LGBTQ authors? And he brought me like a stack of stuff and uh, he handed me a book and issued me a warning. And he said, this has, this contains extreme material. And, you know, I was dressed all goth in a leather jacket and, you know, <laughs> fingerless gloves. And I pointed up and down at myself and I go, look at me, I can handle this. And so I purchased the book based solely on the uh, cover and the title and the back of the book. Now, when I met you in New York, uh, you had recommended an author to me named Dennis Cooper, who uh, was a bit of an influence on Annihilator. This book that I got was The Sluts by Dennis Cooper. And Kyle, I was not prepared for this book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. That I should have heeded his warning, like, taking it a little more seriously. I've never read anything like it. It is upsetting and um, disturbing and violent. And, you know, I'll use the word evil. Like it's like dangerous literature. Mm -hmm. And it may be one of my favorite books I've ever read of all time. It made me cry at one point. It made me almost throw up at another point. It's formatted in such a way that you, you, you can't trust anybody who's tell telling you anything in this book. And, um, Going back to how I feel like Annihilator speaks specifically to a queer or gay lived experience, uh, I'd certainly the same for this author and this book, and I can't wait to read more. But I just thought it was so funny that I got this book, didn't put together who it was until like a week or so ago when I booked you on the show. And then I was like, I was reading the book and I was like, holy shit, wait, this sounds like what Kyle was describing. And then uh, I had written down the name of the author that you gave me and it was Dennis Cooper. So what is your like deal with Dennis awesome. Cooper? Uh, I first found him when I was in college. Um, 
you know, I, I think my ex at the time was just describing Frisk to me and it sounded so insane and I don't know, just unlike anything else I'd ever read. So I picked up a copy of it and it just blew my mind. Um, and the sluts too. I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite authors and obviously an insanely big uh, inspiration for my own art. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess like Annihilator, I think you can sort of see this if you've read the sluts or Frisk. Uh, I've, I've felt for years that no one has really, I don't know, done justice to his writing uh, through film. There is an adaptation of Frisk out there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it does a great job of capturing what that book is at its core. Mm. But I just thought there's so much potential with the ideas that he, he works with and the themes and just like the atmosphere of it. Um, and it, it resonates so much with me that I, I really just wanted to try taking a stab at, you know, I mean, Annihilator isn't really like a point for point adaptation of any of his writing, but I'm working with a lot of the same ideas, a lot of the same aesthetics. Um, and so it was just my attempt at taking those ideas and trying to bring them to life on screen in the way that I thought they could. And you, you did, and you did it in a matter of minutes. It, I mean, when I realized, when I put the connection together and I wasn't even finished with the sluts yet, I, my picturing of the book started to look like your film. And I actually really love that. I think that you captured something about uh, Dennis Cooper's writing and kind of the boundaries of pushing things like BDSM and violence and how far is too far. And it's uh, fucking scary. That's, you know, is this lots of horror novel? Maybe not, but it is horror also at the same time. You know, I think horror can be encompassing of a lot of stuff. And um it's it's this kind of book where yes i recommend the fuck out of this book to like three people that i know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of the other people in my life should not read this book but mm -hmm. if you're gonna get it then like then go put yourself through this because i feel like a different person after i read it and i don't know if i like that or not <laughs> no i mean for sure like i think for the right person and someone that is going to be open to, to what he's trying to do with his writing. It's like just so unlike anything else. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually really funny. My copy of the sluts um, was missing from me for like a year and a half specifically because I like let just one of my friends borrow it. Um, Cause he was really curious about the book. And then, like, over the course of a year and a half, it made a tour of, like, my entire friend group. Oh, wow. It's from, like, person to person. Like, one of them would, like, mention it to another person, and they'd be like, that sounds fucking crazy. Let me borrow it. And I think, like, seven or eight people ended up reading it because that, which I love because I love slutty. Your, your copy of the book is yeah. pretty slutty. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, it, it, it did tour my entire friend group. Um, 
I, I had a couple of people, two people tell me that they had read it and that it affected them and that it's a crazy read. And then I had like two other people say that they have it on a shelf and they're afraid to open it. I, mm-hmm. I just one more time want to be very clear to my listeners. The content in this book will shake you and upset you. And it is not content that is normally explored or discussed, um, but it is handled just exceptionally well and it's it's just a hell of a read and it's quick it's yeah. a very quick read too mm-hmm. yeah I, I i read the whole thing in one sitting i mean it's also one of those books where it's like it moves so quickly mm-hmm. and the other thing is the narrative gets flipped on its head so many times yeah that i just like could not put it down one paragraph i'm like okay this is what's happening and then the next fucking paragraph it's like no that was a lie and it it, and then just uh you know details throughout paying attention to you know things like eye color or uh details that are listed to you that change it's like god none of this is reliable information and i can't stop reading this pack of lies you know (laughs) because is it true it could be true it's probably true is it i don't know um, but I, so thank you for recommending him. I'm glad that I found him and I can't wait, uh, can't wait to read more. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you checked it out. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's why I wanted to go first because it related to Annihilator and you, but do you have any horror recommendations for the listeners? Uh, yeah, I, it's funny actually that we were talking about Dennis Cooper. Um, cause my recommendation was going to be, uh, my friend uh, B.R. Yeager's book, Negative Space, okay. um, who he, I mean, this book and his writing in general is pretty obviously influenced by Dennis Cooper as well. Um, it has like a lot of the same ideas of, you know, destroyed bodies, corrupted youth, the, the, lengths to which submission and domination can be taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the the very like porous way that the internet and technology kind of seeps into it. Um, but this book, Negative Space, um, it's, I don't know how to best describe it. It's, it's about like three, it, it's about a group of friends in high school um that essentially discover a way to communicate with some like occult spirit realm essentially it's all left very very vague and never really explained um but they 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 tap into this energy uh in this town that is really inexplicable. Um, this is also happening at the same time that there's a string of suicides back to back happening throughout their school and throughout the town um, that are very obviously linked in some sort of way with all of this. Um, and at the same time, this uh, drug called Whirl, um, essentially like some knockoff thing you find at the gas station but they've discovered if you take it in enough uh quantity it it allows them to like tap into this realm Um, but it's it's a really really phenomenal book uh especially if you're into 
like occult, weird, dark magic shit. All of the above. Uh, I love it. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's interesting to me because I love that type of stuff, but then it also kind of figures in that like very Dennis Coopery, like intensity and just very like bleak outlook on the world. Um, but yeah, I, I love this book. It, I love B.R. Yeager's writing in general, all his books. He put out a short story collection like uh, earlier last year. Um, that was also really phenomenal. Um, but yeah, we've also actually kind of talked loosely about potentially trying to collaborate on some sort of a, a screenplay or a project of something. Um, I think just because our aesthetics really kind of line up. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you have such a voice and you have so much to say. You, it's filmmakers like you that inspire me to continue working on my own screenplay. Um, and so thank you for being such a great inspiration and uh, keep making your fucking art. I appreciate it. I mean, yeah, Hell you, yeah. Just, you just got to keep going with it. I think that's really the, the answer, what I've realized over time. I would agree with that. Well, hey, uh, we came here to talk about a film. What do you say we go trick-or-treating? Today, we're talking about the 2007 found footage classic uh, from Spain called Wreck. This is the actually first uh, foreign language film that we've done on the podcast. I was going to say international, but Ghostwatch counts as international. What was it, Kyle, that drew you to this film? What, what is your relationship to it? Um, well, like I said, I, I love found footage horror in general. And like this movie in particular, I think is easily like the second or third best in the genre, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's also like one of the movies I think I've seen the most in my life. Like it just has such great replay value. And it's it's like one of it's one of those movies that I love showing to people just because it's so insane. Yeah. Um it I mean it just the, the thing that I'm consistently astounded by with it is just like the pacing. Um from the moment they get into the building really other than that one, like really brief interview section that mm -hmm. they have. Yeah. It's just nonstop. Yeah. It, it does not give you a single break. Um, and I, I don't know, like I said earlier, the Texas chainsaw is one of my favorite movies ever. And they kind of both do that same thing where they just do not give you a single second to breathe. And, and they're both really tight films too. wreck is a really quick 79 minutes it's really inc impressive what they're able to accomplish in such a short amount of time uh, as i said this was the first time that i had ever seen this film i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest with you kyle i am not the world's biggest found footage fan <laughs> when it's done well i can really appreciate it and uh, the thing is for with found footage it's kind of a subgenre that you have to dig through piles and piles to to find for me, something that really works. Yeah. <laughs> I watched this this week. I'm going to be honest. The first time I watched it, I was not much of a fan, but I always watch these movies a couple times before I record. And the second time gave mm -hmm. me such a better appreciation for it. And I'm so fucking glad I watched it a second time. I, you know, I also checked out Hell House LLC this week, which I had never seen. 
And mm -hmm. um, I actually had a really fun time with that. I liked it a lot. It did scare me. Then I watched the sequel and it ruined everything for me. And <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah. I mean, I think the first Hell House is a lot of fun. Yeah. The sequels are, I mean, I find them entertaining, but they're not like good. <laughs> but, but the one they, they, they actually released another one in the series just last year. Yeah. That probably is the second best of the whole thing, in my I, opinion. I will finish the series. I'm just, you know, it's in the, the second one. Honestly, I, I think the one they put out last year is probably the only other one that you really need to watch. Okay. Uh, I, I would only recommend the rest of them if you're just like a found footage fan in general. Otherwise, like, there's better movies in the genre you could check out. <laughs> Sure. Well, you know, Rack is so interesting to me because this was kind of a, a peak moment for found footage, right? It was everywhere at this time, kind of. But I think I feel like Rack really contributed in starting that. Obviously, nowhere near being the first, but this really set off a wave. It was remade the following year in 2008 uh, in America in a film called Quarantine, which I actually I have not seen. I didn't don't call me dumb. I know I host a horror podcast, but I didn't realize that they were uh, the same property. Um, that Quarantine was a remake of Wreck. I knew about them each separately. Uh, and actually, uh, in about 2009, went to Not Scary Farm in California and did go through the Quarantine Haunted House. But I didn't put any of this together until this week. Uh, what are some of the best qualities in a found footage film that you look for? I don't know. I mean, I, it, it really depends on, I guess, exactly what they're going for, because... I mean, so like Wreck, I think, is one of the best in the genre, but so is The Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. And those two movies could not be doing like a more different thing. Yeah. You know, um, so it's it's interesting to think about like what the what specifically I would look for. I mean, I guess it really just depends on how they're trying to use the format within like the, the specific context of the narrative. Like with the Blair Witch Project, it works great because it, it places you in these people's shoes and it, it removes any expectation of a greater explanation or, uh, you know, the, the expectation that you're going to be shown this, really crazy moment where everything finally falls into place like you would if it was you know just a standard horror movie yeah because it's it, you're you're just seeing the little bits and pieces that those people are able to see yeah um with something like wreck the reason it works is because it's just so unbelievably claustrophobic and mm -hmm. fast-paced like you really just feel exactly the situation that those people are in like at every moment, like especially towards the last like 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, just gets so fucking crazy. Um, uh, I also think like just thinking about the, the genre as a whole, um, there's a, there's a few people that have done found footage for the internet, not in the context of like a narrative film mm -hmm. that honestly, I think, have done it better than 
95% of the people that have done it like the proper cinematic way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you'd know like Marble Hornets. It's no. this, uh, it was like the kind of the original, um, like before anyone knew of Slender Man as a, a creature and a idea, they like, they picked up some like images that people had posted on 4chan about Slenderman and started like a, a YouTube series about it, which kind of is how that character and that idea originally was popularized. Um, but that series was a very, very big early inspiration for me. Um, and I think what's interesting about both the way some people on the internet have approached it, as well as some of the more modern interpretations of the genre. Um, it's, it's specifically the way that the internet and technology in like a, a broader sense can figure into it. Like it's, it's one thing if you're looking at found footage where it's, Oh, we're literally just looking at the, the footage that was found on this camera, you know, which Obviously, I think can be great in its own right, mm-hmm. but it, it can become a lot more complex in my mind and a lot more interesting when you're looking at like the way this technology is actually like used on the internet or or used by just different people and organizations in, in society. Um, and and like the way that that can kind of like porously just overlap with the, the the footage you're being shown um yeah I, I don't know like the i mean like i was saying earlier my approach with the film i'm working on right now is it's kind of beyond the narrative itself it's about like um surveillance state paranoia mm. more or less um it's 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 trying to tap into the fear that you are being watched through your laptop camera, your phone camera. Anytime you're in public, there's dozens of cameras that are recording you. And there's really not much you can do to stop that from happening or control who's going to have access to that footage. Yeah. And what they're going to do with it. Easily allow it. Like how often on your phone do you just click like allow on these, you know, on, on terms and agreements and shit. It's scary. It's like every day. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, I, I love what you said about you utilizing the technology in found footage. And you do also mentioned recently there's been kind of uh, new directors reinterpreting the format. Uh, I think of like Deadstream, right? And that film and how it utilized uh, social media with found footage. But then I also think of something like The Outwaters, which also blew my mind because it's kind mm-hmm. of this like psychedelic hallucinogenic experience but it's caught on camera so a camera is documenting it is this real is it really happening and i think that there's something really brilliant about both of those films and how different they are i think what works best for me with wreck is that this is a newscaster speaking directly to an audience and we are the audience that she's speaking directly to and that draws me in when something like hell house llc is kind it starts out as this run-of-a-mill kind of people who are unlikable kind of being assholes, you know, and then suddenly I found myself really caring about them and it drew me in. But 
with Rack, what really worked for me was was Angela speaking directly to us and this continuous like she has a job to do and that's what she's doing. And I really, really appreciated that. Uh, the the film is directed by and I'm going to preface this by saying I don't speak Spanish and uh, I'm going to do my best with pronunciations uh, directed by Jaume Balaguero and Paco Plaza with the writing credit. So by those two and then also Luiso Bardejo. Cast and uh, as our lead, Angela Vidal, Manuela Velasco, who is a real newscaster. And it added this sense of realism that I thought was really, really fucking cool. Now, I will say, to my understanding, the subtitled version in the original Spanish language versus the English dubbed version are very different. Apparently, the, the version, I didn't watch the English dub version, but apparently it's insufferable and really bad. I've only ever seen the subtitled version. Yeah. What do you say we get into the plot of this film? Yeah, let's do it. So we open immediately on Angela Vidal, who is a local news reporter in Spain, recording for her segment, While You're Sleeping. This is recorded by her cameraman, Pablo, who is played by Pablo Rosso, who is also credited as the cinematographer on this film. As I mentioned, Manuela is a real newscaster in Spain. The film was, it was filmed in Barcelona, and it was all filmed on location. There were no sets built specifically for it, which I think also really adds to the realism of it. She's in a firehouse and reporting on the duties of uh, firemen throughout you know, the course of one night, how they live and eat and sleep and hopefully following them on their rounds uh, in a fire truck. And we get the sense that this segment is sort of a throwaway bit or like kind of small potatoes on whatever network she's on. But we get this great realistic introduction to her where she's doing multiple introductions and multiple takes and repositioning herself. And what I really like about her instantly is her drive. And I think that her drive is showcased really well throughout the entire film. Yeah, I mean, especially towards the end, like she just has such a force, like with with getting them to where they need to go. Like when shit really starts going down, she's really the only thing that's like pushing things forward. And I don't know. She, she's a great actor. She's perfect for the part. She's incredible. The, the film has many very good performances. She is, she carries this film so fucking well. Uh, so at this firehouse, she's interviewing the supervisor, but mentions to Pablo, the, the cameraman, that if this interview sucks, just go ahead and stop recording. She doesn't want to waste the tape. Now, I, I bring this up because it reveals to us that tape is a valuable commodity. And she kind of tells him to cut a couple more times and then also tells him don't stop recording throughout the film as well. But just utilizing this limited amount of tape that they have uh, is really interesting to me because it starts out as this ambitious way to only capture the things that are important. And then it becomes this you know we have to utilize the tape that we have to capture what's mm -hmm. happening to these people yeah i mean at a certain point it, it becomes like they don't know what's important or what's even going to happen yeah um, so it it just needs to be everything yeah there's a little bit where she's kind of dressing in the firemen's uniforms and you know she goes she's taken to the cafeteria where it's dinner time the firefighters react excitedly both because there's a woman and there's a camera in the room she meets manu and alex they are played by ferran terrazza and david ver to the firefighters and she's told she's going to be following them tonight 
On the way out of the cafeteria, she also motions for Pablo to stop filming again, being conservative with the tape. Now, after they have mic'd up the firefighters and sound checked, Manu and Alex show Angela around. She interviews Alex and asks what a normal night is like. And she's disappointed when he tells her that it's really mostly not emergencies, but kind of other services, broken water mains, rescuing pets. And Angela expresses that she'd actually really love it if a siren went off and that they had to go tend to an emergency. And then she's like, you know, I don't want anything to happen, but like, she wants some good footage for her show, which she's going to get. Later, she's playing basketball with the firemen when the siren actually does go off. And they all slide down the pole from the basketball court, but Angela and Pablo have to take the stairs because of the camera. And they load into the fire truck and drive off. They reveal that it's not a big emergency just to help an old woman who's locked in her apartment. So one of the firemen asks her, what's the name of the show again? And she tells him when you're sleeping. And he jokingly responds, then who's watching it? And it's kind of sad for her. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real, though. I, up until that point in the film, I really don't know who would be watching it. No, <laughs> not at all. It's not interesting. She's not getting anything interesting. You know, it's no, like, this it's... is how they sleep. And uh, this is where they keep their uniforms, you know? It's so dry. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious just in how, I mean, it, it works phenomenally how it pivots once they actually get to the building. Yeah. But... And it happens super fast. Once they do, they get out of the truck and the firemen tell Angela that they are bringing tools inside in case they need to break down any doors, etc. And then they enter this high rise apartment building by high rise. I mean, it's probably what, like five stories. Uh, I think it's four. four it's stories. either three or four. All right, then never mind. It's not a high rise building, but it's an apartment building. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like a it's like a residential. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's a cute little Spanish apartment. <laughs> it really is. Now, the, the police are also there. And Angela remarks upon that when they enter, the lobby is filled with very upset tenants. And I have to say, a couple episodes ago, I did Basket Case. And these tenants who have one personality trait each reminded me of the tenants that live in the building in a in Basket Case. Yeah. No, I, I see exactly what Yes. Yeah. They are um, much better actors than the ones in Basket Case. But I also the way that these tenants are credited as well is exactly what their personality trait is. Uh, Madre Hysterica or Hysterical Mother, played by Maria <laughs> Lanau. <laughs> says, That's so funny. I didn't I don't think I ever bothered to actually look at like the the names of the characters. Well, most of them don't have names. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're 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 really just there to be turned into like rabies zombies. Right. Right. You want to get and down for it. Realistically, there's no time for introductions throughout the course of anything that's about to happen. Yeah. So this hysterical mother who's holding her seven-year-old daughter tells her that she made the call when she heard screaming from the old woman's apartment. At the end of the lobby, I'm just going to describe this space a little bit, is this massive staircase, like not a spiral staircase in shape, but in the fact that it goes round and round and round. And if you stand under it, you can see directly up. And if you stand at the top and look down, you can see directly down to the lobby. Now, the firefighters are about to rush upstairs when a police officer who is called Polizia Adelto or Adult Police, <laughs> uh, played <laughs> by Vicente Gill, comes down. And he asks about the camera crew. Alex explains they're from a local station. And Angela, like, very seriously insists they have permission to do this. The officer tells the firefighters that they are their responsibility. 
And he tells the tenants to remain calm as they climb up the stairs. It seems like this old woman has fallen and the tenants are all upset because she was screaming so much. Apparently this old woman is weird and keeps to herself. And we are met outside of her apartment by uh, Joven, who is another police officer. And he's younger. He's played by uh, Jorge Yamam Serrano, who is instantly annoyed by the camera, which will be a continuous theme throughout. (laughs) Angela takes this opportunity to report on what's happening as they're trying to get into this door. And she's startled when they actually take the mallet and bust down the door. And everyone enters the apartment and it's dark and Joven tries to tell them to turn off the camera. But down the hall, we see the old woman, Conchita, played by Martha Carbonell. And she's seen standing covered in blood in a nightgown. They approach her down the hall to inspect and Pablo happens to turn on a bright light on the camera uh, to adjust to the dark room, but it frightens Conchita and sets her off. He is told to turn off the camera, which he sets it down. Angela insists that he does not turn it off. And suddenly Conchita begins screaming and attacks the older police officer, chewing on his neck and pulling skin and veins out of his neck. And it's fucking glorious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Practical effects in this abound. And a lot of the shaky cam and a lot of the found footage format doesn't allow for us to get a really close look at a lot of the detail, but it's there. When you see it, you see it and it's beautiful. Yeah. It Honestly, in this instance, like, the the way you you see it through that you know the the classic shaky cam found footage perspective it makes a lot of it look so much more grisly than i think it might have if it was you know just a standard film which is something i really love about this movie like that scene where he gets bitten it just looks so fucking grisly yeah it, it's gross. It's and it, it's it, it's something about just the, the the floodlight like shitty DV cam look like it. It looks like some video you shouldn't be watching on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, It's madness. Everyone's screaming. Pablo is filming it all. Now they rush the officer down the stairs and uh, Angela tells Pablo very seriously again to record everything. And I love this long shot where they go down all of the stairs and it doesn't pull away from this man's bleeding neck as he's carried as they descend the stairs the lights actually go off for a few seconds and they freak out but then they come back on and when they get to the front doors to take him outside the tenants tell them that they're not being allowed to leave the building and the doors have been barricaded and like you said once this movie gets going it doesn't stop and this is where it has begun and started going now while the officer is tended to, Angela and the tenants try to break down the door, but an officer outside on like a megaphone says that the Department of Health has decided to seal up the building and no one is allowed to leave. They're told to work with the officers that are inside with them and they'll be updated and perhaps released as soon as possible, which scares the hell out of everybody for obvious reasons. You know, this film was in 2007 and I couldn't help but think of the COVID outbreak and what we just went through a few years ago the panic that people experience in such a situation, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it is kind of funny, like watching that movie. Now I I was thinking the same thing. Like it plays. So I don't know. It made me more like existentially nervous just because all of, I mean, 
it's that same feeling that it it plays on the whole time that just no one really understands what's going on or mm. how bad this thing is. Yeah. And the the way it just builds the dread around that is really really impressive to me. Yeah. It and it escalates so quickly and people's reactions to what's happening now that we have lived through this pa- pandemic, the reactions are pretty accurate. So Joven, the young cop, radios in, but he's told to just follow directions. Now, this guy's ill-equipped to be in charge of a group of people. <laughs> he <laughs> um, he is young and kind of just feels like he has to be the alpha of the group and everyone has to do what he says because he says so. And he stays that way for quite some time. He gets mad again and tries to grab the camera from Pablo. And this time, Angela freaks out on him and she's saying don't you fucking touch the camera we have to record everything so that people will see what's happening in here and the upset mother insists that they tape everything as well backs her up which i thought was really cool and interesting still holding her daughter close to her now holding her phone the upset mother tells everybody that her husband is outside and he's not being allowed in there are cops outside everywhere and the streets are blocked off and i love how quickly everything is happening on almost on top of each other Um, and how we're given these bits of information through kind of creative ways. Like she's got a phone, her husband's texting her. We would never be able to see what's happening outside. Mm -hmm. Now her husband had gone to get antibiotics for their daughter. And now obviously he can't get back in when suddenly and out of nowhere, a fucking body falls from the top of the stairwell and smashes on the floor. And I fucking screamed when I saw that happen. So do the tenants because the actors didn't know what was going to happen. Is that true? Yes, the actors were not told that there would be a body falling that, from the top of the stairwell and smashing that is on so the floor. awesome. Yeah, so their reactions are absolutely real. There are a couple of actors next to where it's happening. I think that they must have probably known, but everyone else kind of toward the foreground, they had no idea. This is one of the reasons why I, as an actor, want to do a found footage film because like they fuck with you. In Blair Witch, they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know they were going to be chased through the woods by real people, you know? Mm-hmm. It's giving you this chance to improvise and, and, and showcase some real real reactions. That that jump scare in this film, I think, is one of my favorite jump scares in any horror movie. It's there, like it, it, it's just, I, I think the thing that really works about it for me is like, it's actually more horrifying when you get beyond the initial jump yeah the image of him on the ground just like a mangled body like it 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 actually gets worse once you get past the initial just jump of it um, which is not something that i think a lot of filmmakers accomplish very often the feeling of it doesn't go away because we hear people's reactions to it even later during the interview portion we do discover this is alex one of those firefighters that angela was following we hear someone screaming upstairs so manu and joven go upstairs to investigate they tell everybody to stay downstairs and then joven grabs the camera and shuts it off but angela and pablo turn it back on and start to sneak upstairs to see what the hell's happening and Angela insists they keep recording and they go back into Conchita, the old woman's apartment, Pablo first, and they can hear someone moaning down the hall. A young woman runs toward them. She's holding her bloody arm and then she collapses down on the ground. Conchita, the old woman, follows her and charges at this whole group, 
Joven withdraws his gun and shoots her three times. He did warn her. And Kachita falls to the ground dead. And he gets mad because Pablo recorded the whole thing, but Manu allows them to keep recording. So this whole sequence is so good. Yeah. Because Angela is so shaken and she steps up super close to the camera and we can still see Conchita in the background on the floor dead. And you keep waiting and waiting and waiting for her to stand up and she doesn't. So now I'm nervous because nothing happened and I'm already built up for the next time that something's going to happen. We discover that there's an entrance down in the lobby to a neighboring textile warehouse. It's through like this metal garage kind of door. Manu and Joven go looking for another exit while Angela follows reporting, but the exit has already been blocked off. The upset mother remarks that her daughter is getting worse and her fever is going up. She has tonsillitis. That's why the dad was bringing antibiotics. From outside, they are told again, don't leave the building, that all exits have been sealed. Uh, a health inspector is on the way to investigate. Now they're told BNC protocol has been put into place. And Angela asks Manu what that means. And Manu tells her it's a protocol used for biological, nuclear, and chemical threat situations, which has a profound effect on the, rea <laughs> the reactions of the tenants hearing that news. A tenant named Guillerme informs them that the wounded are stable, but they won't stay that way for long. Guillerme is like a medical intern. And then Cesar, played by Carlos Asarte, won't follow Joven's instruction and go back to the hall. He's saying that their phones and their TVs and their radios are no longer working. And he wants to know what the hell is going on. After obtaining a key from the concierge's office, they run to another potential exit where they think they can jump from a patio. It's not too high. We also learn that there's an unaccounted for tenant and she's referred to as the Colombian girl. And she's also credited as that. This is going to end up being the girl that we saw with her arm bleeding in Kochita's apartment. They do comment that she is dead. Now, they rush upstairs to this patio, but they are met with officers in full armor and guns and dogs, and the massive plastic sheets are then secured over the exit. It's just like this kind of, now they really accept they're not going to get out of the situation moment. Yeah, that, that image in particular, I think, is so central to, like, the way that it just ratchets up tension in the first third of the film. Cause you know, you see, you see that the front door is locked and like you hear commotion outside up until that point. But when they get to the window and there's like an entire row of like police officers and SWAT gear. Yeah. And they're physically like sealing off the building. It's it's this moment of like, oh fuck, this is this is like really serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, everyone gets upset. They start yelling at each other, and Joven pulls out his fucking gun and pulls it on everybody and starts screaming at them, telling them to go downstairs and shut up. And it gets really quiet. And then from outside, we hear someone on a megaphone say, "Remain calm." Which is <laughs> just this moment of like really needed like a giggle, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's funny. Now the, this voice tells them that a doctor from the health department will be allowed into the building and they need to follow his directions. He's on the way. Stop trying to leave. Joven lowers his gun and calms down. It's really awkward. And he apologizes because now he's pulled a gun on everybody. So they've seen that side of him. <laughs> he's also fucking shot somebody already. Uh, yeah. Like, he's, uh, he's honestly a terrible cop. Terrible. Like, 
impulsive, like bossy, but not in like a leadership way, but just in a shitty bossy way. Yeah. Like he, he tries to, I don't know. I feel like he consistently acts like he's trying to do what's best for the entire group and um, really just consistently fails at every single turn. And in moments like those, it's like so obvious, like, yeah, you, you really don't care about anyone but yourself here. he's like a very much he's following the orders that he has given and he's instead of looking at the situation that he's in and the people around him he is blindly doing what he's told by the the authorities outside yeah granted when it comes down to it the authorities outside are really just doing what's best for the rest of the fucking world yeah now we cut to angela who's reporting an update and talking about the events of the evening it's now about 2 a.m And as the injured are tended to, Angela interviews the tenants. And it gets kind of interesting here. Like you said, this is kind of the break that we get. Really the only one. Uh, She Mm -hmm. tells Pablo, if there's an interview that isn't going well, just cut it. Like cut the tape and save it. So we talk to Guillermo, who uh, played by Carlos Vicente. And he says that he's only a medical intern. and He's never been in such a serious situation before. He knows how to give injections and take blood pressure. And that's about it. Next are... Abuela and Abuelo, Grandma and Grandpa, as they are credited, and they are interviewed. They are played by Marisa, Teresa, Ortega, and Manuel Branchud, respectively. Abuela says she heard loud screams and woke up her husband. She insists that something strange is going on. Someone did something in the building, and that's why they're locked inside. Next, we we interview um, a woman who is credited as Japanese woman, played by Akemi Goto. And she speaks in Spanish, but it's clear that it's not her native language. She recounts in tears that the fireman fell from above and how upsetting it was for her. Her husband, credited as Japanese man, played by Kao Chenmin, calls out to her in Japanese. She responds, I love her performance here because it feels so fucking genuine. She's really good throughout the entire thing. Mm -hmm. Next is an interview with Jennifer, the little girl. Claudia Silva is the actor playing her. And we learned that Jennifer's dog, Max, was taken to the vet because he got sick. The upset mother, Jennifer's mother, remarks that there must have been something upstairs, that people don't just fall like that. So she's she's saying that there's something upstairs that threw Alex down them. And I, I just love, she's like, I'm definitely going to sue. I'm going to call the newspapers and I'm going to tell everybody what's happening in here. <laughs> Next is Caesar. This is a really weird moment in the film. And it kind of, um, I had problems with it the first time I watched it. And then I Got it the second time. Uh, He's combing his hair. He's very aware that he's going to be on camera. I suspected he was gay until he mentioned that he lived with his mother, who's now passed. And then I knew he was fruity. (laughs) 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 Um, He asks if they're recording and he's told no. And he immediately goes off about how it's the Chinese in the building. And he says these terrible things about them. And, you know, they eat rats and raw fish and their apartment smells. And they always leave their door open and they scream in Chinese or Japanese or something. And he's very awful about this couple and their son. And then he says, "Are you know, when will we start recording? And he's told they already are. And he's not, he's more upset that his face is shiny than the fact that he just went on this racist tirade on camera mm. also kind of flirts with pablo here was my thing about this i kept waiting for the racial issue to come back up again and it necessarily i mean it does i was waiting for a bigger point to be made and i shouldn't have been because thinking back about what happened during covid people blame everybody else for what 
happens in a situation like this. Yeah. Even the Colombian girl is not given a name. She's called the Colombian girl by her neighbors because there's kind of this sense of otherness in an emergency. You're not one of us. You're not from here. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who can we trust you? And it's hard to sit through him, say those things. But fuck, did it turn out to be real when COVID happened? This blaming bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it, I I feel like that entire segment is feels pretty like realistic in terms of how people would react in, in a moment like that. But it's interesting because in a way, like none of those things ever come back up because beyond this point in the film, they really don't have a single other moment to even really discuss what's going on yeah. or where it could be coming from. Or even that little bit at the end, like they give you a like kind of little clues and hints here and there, but uh, it's all just like, it's, it's seen very passingly. And it, it's funny too, with like the, the, the little girl who's sick mm -hmm. and obviously how that plays into it with her dog throughout the film, even though there's very little in the way of them actually sitting down and talking and characters discussing what's happening. They do make it pretty obvious in it to a certain extent, like what is happening and where it came from by just giving you these really, really quick little clues. Yeah. And that I think is something that's really effective about how this film is structured because it, it makes it so they don't ever need to take away from the actual action of it. And I appreciate that we are only given the same information as the people in this movie. And so we know only the same amount of information that they have just adds to our sense of terror as the film goes along. One thing that I will say is that, okay, so if this racism exists in this building and amongst these people, when it comes down to it, the great equalizer that's gonna make all these people the exact same is this fucking infection because it doesn't care where you're from, right? And I think that that's a really interesting point that they're gonna blame everybody, but you know, their own people when in fact, this is gonna come for anybody. And so if there was like a bigger point that I was looking for in this racist moment, that's what I'm settling on it being. So Chauvin updates everyone that there is a possible infection in the building. Well, no shit. And the doctor who's coming will take blood samples of everyone and then they will let everyone out. And while taking a roll call to check which tenants there are and which units they live in, we learn that the Japanese couple actually lives with her father and he's upstairs in bed. He's old and paralytic. And Abuela speaks up and says, maybe it's his fault. And the Japanese woman says, we should bring him downstairs. And, you know, he shouldn't be up there alone. And then the upset mother, ooh, she tells, she says, well, maybe it is his fault it's happening. And then she keeps saying, I don't understand you. I can't understand what you're saying. And it's such a shitty fucking thing to, like, it's just a shitty way to treat this woman, you know? Manu reminds her that her daughter is sick too. And she again insists it's tonsillitis, but it kind of shuts her up, you know? We learn that there is a penthouse apartment up top, but no one lives there. It's owned by someone who lives in Madrid, but he's kept it up, uh, locked up for years. Now, the doctor named Leandro, played by Ben Temple, is let into the building wearing a biohazard suit as Angela updates the camera on what's happening. He questions what a camera is doing there and then goes to tend to the wounded after he turns off the camera. So... Angela and Pablo have a conversation about how if the police officer and the fireman have been bitten, they may react like Conchita the old lady did. So they sneak up 
to where the doctor went and Pablo kind of climbs up and is filming through a window to see what's happening. So Angela can't see anything that's happening. Pablo has the camera. We see them handcuff Alex, the fireman who fell to the table he's laying on and his shirt is cut off of him uh, and he's making these coughing gestures. Uh, his face is all torn up. He looks gross. The doctor takes a needle and injects it into his arm and his body reacts to this injection. But before they're able to handcuff and inject the older police officer, he rises from the table and attempts to attack. It's I love this sequence because it takes a long time. It's really like the last moment of calm you get in the entire thing. Um, and it, I mean, actually another thing that I, I kind of, really appreciate about this movie is um, they sort of imply that the the virus is related to like it, it's like an offshoot of rabies essentially mm. yeah and I, I like that they they do this thing where they they have like the zombies essentially act like rabid animals like they I don't know, like the the way they'll just kind of like pause there, like very, very still for a good like 15, 20 seconds as yeah. someone's approaching them and then just lose it. Yeah. Um, or yeah, like the whole way that scene plays out where they seem so uh, sluggish and out of it up until the moment that they absolutely do not seem sluggish and out of it. Yeah. And then they just, it, it snaps in the gear. Um, I don't know. I, I, I love that element of, of how they depict the infected in it. I, I, what I, I love that because, you know, these aren't like the walking dead zombies. They're not like Romero zombies. They react to injury. If you hit one in the face, it grabs its face, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't just keep mindlessly coming. And so it has some kind of autonomy and awareness over itself, even though it is, rabbit just like you said mm -hmm. yeah they, i mean they're not really uh i mean they're obviously zombies but also like it's pretty much implied that like they're they're not they're not dead yeah. it's never implied that these are dead people they're still people they're just infected mm -hmm. uh, and i don't know i i i do kind of appreciate just because I don't know. I think at a certain point in the late 2000s, like the world was so oversaturated with zombie content yes. um, that it's it's refreshing to me, at least, that in this movie, they actually clearly put some thought into how can we approach this in in a way that has some depth to it. Isn't just like the obvious choice Um and also, like, they do a lot of world building as to, like, what this infection is and how it operates. Um, so I, I think that's really impressive in its own way. Agreed. Completely agreed. I mean, like we said, so much with so little information, you know, and you put these pieces together as it goes along. So Angela is screaming for Pablo, demanding, like, what the hell is happening in there? And then suddenly Alex rises from the table, too, and he bites Guillermo on the neck. Pablo tells Angela, start fucking running, right? She's like, what's happening? He's like, just keep running. So as they do, the doctor, Joven, and Manu all exit that room as Guillaume begs for them to let them out. Guillaume was just bitten. He's insisting that he didn't get bitten, but it's clearly too late for him when he slams on the glass door and the, uh, it starts to crack the glass. The group begins to run. 
and uh, they close the giant metal garage door behind them. So now it's they are only in the lobby and the staircase. Manu and Joven gang up on the doctor and they force him to tell them what the hell is going on. And he tells them that a couple of weeks ago, a sick dog was brought to the vet. And after a bit, the dog went into a coma. And moments later, when it woke up, it was extraordinarily aggressive and it killed all of the other animals. It took several tranquilizers to subdue it before putting it to sleep. And then they traced the dog back to this building. And Angela figures out this was Jennifer's dog that the little girl was talking about before. And everyone stares at the upset mother who's holding her daughter. And <laughs> she, you know, she still says, it's just tonsillitis. And the doctor explains that uh, he thinks the dog spread the infection through its saliva. And then out of nowhere, Jennifer bites her mom's face and uh, starts screaming almost inhumanly, you know, covered in her mother's blood and then runs upstairs. Her mom tries to follow her, but she's detained. And this gets really upsetting. It just hit me. You know, she's uh, handcuffed on the railing of the staircase as she's screaming and just her cries and her begging just really hit me. I thought it was a fucking powerful moment. Manu is given a needle by the doctor and told to inject the little girl immediately. So they run upstairs after her, but they hear a bizarre roaring sound from high above. And they enter Conchita's apartment again, the old woman. But Conchita is no longer laying where she had been laying when she got shot before. They hear a sound from the other end of the hallway and they follow it. And they're calling out to Jennifer. And this little girl appears behind them and she looks really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Her eyes have turned red and her face is pale and she's got blood all over her. And uh, Joven takes the needle and approaches her. And Manu is eerily shining the flashlight on her face in the darkness. And Jennifer attacks Joven and bites him on the neck. And uh, she's just screaming and making these awful, awful sounds. Uh, Joven holds the little girl down and tells everyone to run. She's already bit him. And on their way out of the unit, Conchita jumps out of fucking nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) and uh manu wastes no time and busts her in the face a couple times with his mallet and she collapses to the ground dead again question mark (laughs) she uh you know already got up again now they run downstairs and they run into the japanese family who are running up the stairs guillem has escaped and he's trying to crawl through the bottom of that garage door i'm obsessed with the way they use that garage door in in this scene too just uh with the woman like handcuffed to the railing and then at the same time like this garage door is just a piece of shit it will not stay closed like there's there's absolutely nothing that they can do like they might as well have not even closed it um and they just like continually try and get people to to get this guy to stop him from getting in there. And it just really becomes clear really quick that there's absolutely no stopping what's coming. Um, I also, I love like the transition the movie goes through like around this exact moment because it up until this point, it's kind of easy to keep tabs on everyone in the building and exactly what's going on. After this point, it's just complete chaos. And the, the the way they utilize the location that they have for that is so effective. Because um, by this point, you kind of have a mental map of the building. And you, you understand, like, 
the way people get around the different spaces. Um, but you just have no idea who's infected, where they are, what's going on literally anywhere outside of what you're being shown by the camera. Yeah. It's like when you see the Japanese family run upstairs, now you get downstairs and you realize everyone has scattered. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. and so now anybody could be anywhere and you don't know who's getting bitten or where they are. You know, Angela tries to get the upset mother free from the staircase, which is interesting because she's already been bitten, but she's unable to. So they have to leave her behind and they run upstairs right as the uh, police officer and Guillermo uh, and I think Alex is with them as well. They're all infected. They just devour the mother who's still handcuffed to that stairwell. Manu, Angela, Caesar, and Pablo are all that we see that's left. They hide behind a door and they hear the creatures uh, run upstairs past them. They can't go looking for the others because they could all be infected by now. They just don't know who they're looking for or where to look for them. They realize that the doctor is also on that floor. Manu is about to kick his ass before the doctor says, I've already been bitten. Get away from me. So they close this like metal gate to keep him separate from them. But they remark it's not going to hold them for long. Caesar tells them that there's a drain downstairs that opens up to the sewers and they may be able to escape, but they need a key, which is in the superintendent's apartment. Suddenly, the doctor from behind that metal gate grabs Caesar and pulls him up against the gate and he bites the back of his head open. And I don't even think that you see it happen. And yet in your mind, you see it happen and it's fucking gross. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I also love just the way that that like, he, I think he's like in the middle of like a thought yeah. when it happens. It, I don't know. Just I, I, it goes back to what I'm saying about the pacing, like that moments of action just comes so unexpectedly so mm-hmm. quickly. Like no one can really even like finish a full line of dialogue at this point without something just really insane happening. <laughs> well, and it, we're kind of seeing the, the rate at which these people turn escalate quite quickly, which I think is a really interesting choice as well. It, it's just a, a, a fucking crazy moment. Uh, Angela, Pablo, and Manu run, but they're attacked by the Japanese man who has now been infected. Manu snaps his neck before he can bite anybody. They run all the way downstairs to the mailboxes to try to figure out which unit the super lives in. But then when they have to run back upstairs, they see that the upset mother, who is still handcuffed to the stairs, has now turned. And it's such a cool shot where she's standing up with her hand like handcuffed and she's just staring at them. And it's fucking creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they have to run they do barely make it past her I think she grabs Manu for a moment but he gets past but then they're met by the Colombian girl now this, she's played by Anna Isabel Velasquez and uh, she is uh, strangled by Manu and Pablo they keep, it feels almost video game like at this point just fucking infected popping out everywhere yeah um, it's interesting you say that actually because I'm not I mean, I find the rest of the films in this series entertaining. I don't think any of them are anywhere near as good as the first. Um, But it's funny because the second film, they really, really lean into that. Like, I mean, in my opinion, the, the second film is like the best adaptation of like an early 2000s first person shooter that never actually existed. Yes. Um, and you see a little bit of that at the ending of this movie, but 
for context, the second film, it takes place right after the ending of the first film, but it's a SWAT team that's entering the building and trying to clear it. Um, And it really just plays like a first person shooter. Yeah. I mean, by then there's already several infected in the building. That's a clever concept. There's a lot of like early 2010s horror movies that have like, or horror games that have the exact vibe of this movie. Yeah. You know? Now, as they continue to climb the stairs, the lights shut off again, and Pablo turns on the camera light to reveal the Japanese woman who is now turned. And Menu grabs her and fights her to the ground. And Angela hands him his giant mallet and he busts her head in a couple of times and we don't see it, but we hear it and it's real gross. Manu catches up and uh, just busts the super's door down with the mallet and the three frantically search throughout the unit for the keys. The sequence takes a long time, but everyone's screaming and they can't see anything. So I feel like it still builds the suspense. They do finally find a giant ass massive keys in a drawer, grab them and run. We get this really cool shot where Pablo and Angela look down the stairwell and we see all of the infected looking up at them from various steps. And one of them is Manu who has been turned like within the few fucking like 30 seconds that they were inside of that building. It is reflective of a shot at the beginning of the film where they're at the top and they look down and all of the tenants are in the lobby looking directly up. I didn't catch it the first time. I caught it the second time. It's like, nice. yeah, it's a really I- cool I love that shot so much. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's just, it's also like really funny from like a narrative perspective. One, because you see basically their uh, big strong man that was helping them plow through all of these zombies up until this point. And he's like, well, that's not a thing anymore. Yeah. And then on top of that, they're on like the third of four floors And they're like, great, we have the key to get into the sewer on the first floor. Right. And you look down and it's just like, well, that's not happening. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. So funny just watching them panic and be like, well, I guess we just have to go up. (laughs) It's so quick. And it's just like you suddenly realize how many infected there are and that they are the only two left. And Mm -hmm. they do run up and uh, just right they they somehow out of that massive keys do find the one that opens up the penthouse apartment like honestly it's one of those things in this movie that's like really goofy just let it go there's we like gotta let it go <laughs> there's like there's like 30 keys on there and they get yeah. the right one after like two tries but yeah i mean i mean you know i guess i'm glad they did uh they yeah. slam the door on joven just before he grabs them and the infected are banging on the door And uh, Pablo realizes the light on the camera is loose, so there's no light, and he can't get it turned on. So we're in complete darkness, and then we hear the infected start to back away and go back downstairs. Pablo finally gets the camera light to work, revealing a very upset and crying Angela, and they have found themselves in the penthouse, which is filled with old medical instruments and religious icons and pictures of a young woman like wallpapering this entire place. And for being a penthouse, it's really closed in and claustrophobic mm-hmm. and maze-like. Putting the, listen, you put me in a situation where a fucking like crazy person has wallpapered their entire place with like newspaper articles and weird imagery and I am in. Like, I love this mm-hmm. as a trope. 
I'm obsessed with the the set in like the last I mean just the entire last like 10 minutes in that location are done so perfectly yeah um I'm also like I work I mean, outside of being like a filmmaker, I work in film production just as like a day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I do like set dressing and production design. Amazing. Um, and I I just am so obsessed with how they made that set. Because like it is sort of a trope, but it's done so, so well. And there's so much attention to detail to it. I mean, going back to what I'm, I was saying earlier, like every time I've watched it, like just depending on like where you look in the frame, like you can put together so much information about like what the backstory is yeah. just from like the camera kind of wandering around this space. And there's so much thought put into like, not just making it look like a crazy old weird person's lair. Like right. there's actually intentionality to it. And like, there, there's a logic to it, yes. um, which is really impressive to me. It's also such a stark contrast. This room is filled with clutter, whereas the rest of the building has kind of scarce walls, right? The mm-hmm. stairwell in the lobby, there's really nothing decorative at all going on. And then suddenly you go into this room and you're surrounded by all of these weird images and, and, and statues. And, and so that, you know, as soon as the light comes up, you're kind of taken aback by, by the, the new environment that they find themselves in. They start putting the pieces together as they read the articles on the wall and see these pictures that this young Portuguese girl was deemed possessed by a demon by the Vatican. So this is the girl whose pictures are all over the wall from multiple publications reporting on her. One of them reports that she'd been taken from the hospital, but the Vatican denies that they did it or or that the Vatican didn't know what to do with her. You know, they're like, what the fuck is going on here? They hear a banging sound, but they continue to investigate turning dark corners through this endless maze of weird shit. It really does feel like you're walking through a haunted house at this point. They do come across this old timey tape recorder. This is the big problem that I have with this movie. And they decide to listen to it right now is the best time to press play on a tape recorder. (laughs) They hear a man's voice talking about isolating an enzyme, but it deteriorates when it's exposed to oxygen. He's working on a vaccine. Angela says, what is he talking about? And she rewinds it. And when she presses play, she presses play at the exact perfect moment to find out more information. (laughs) And we hear that the enzyme is not only resistant, but is mutated. And it works a lot like the flu. It's contagious. Uh, He tells uh, of a telegraph from Rome saying that the Portuguese girl must die. And the recording continues as Angela and Pablo continue walking through this unit, not sure what's going on. And we hear the man on the recorder saying, kind of in the distance, he will seal the girl in the room and hope that she will be contained as long as the seal isn't broken. May God help us if this goes wrong. I just want to take a moment and talk about this reveal because this movie is, what, 18 years old? And literally like a month ago, this reveal was spoiled for me when I was listening to another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I went into this movie knowing what was going to happen in the last like 15 minutes. And I think it made me go into this movie less excited because when it comes to anything revolving around demonic possession, I instantly check out. I think The Exorcist is the only film that did that right. And it's because The Exorcist is not about demonic possession. It's about faith and loss of faith and family and so much more, right? Yeah. I didn't love this until I started really thinking about it. 
And I was like, wait, they thought this girl was possessed. What if it really was a virus? And now science is proving that, right? Did, did this enzyme, is it like the demon enzyme or is it just a sickness? And this is science proving religion wrong. And it doesn't give you a clear answer and you have to decide for yourself. And I actually think that's really fucking cool because it doesn't, it doesn't dwell there. Suddenly we move on and that doesn't matter anymore. How, what, what do you yeah. think about this reveal? I, I've kind of always interpreted it the way that you did similarly. Like, I, I mean, I feel like the point is they're trying to, like, if you look at the, the infected up until the, that point, they don't really seem that far off from the uh, kind of cliche that we have in our heads of what possession looks like, at least mm-hmm. in films and popular media. Um so I, I kind of I kind of like the idea that they like tried curing this girl through an exorcism and then realized like this is something beyond what we can understand. Um, but I don't know. I, I do appreciate that even with all the, the clues and information they give you, it is kind of left ambiguous still at the end. It's it's like I don't know. They give you enough to kind of like mull over in your head. Yes. But there's never any moment where it actually like explains for you point for point what happened and how this infection got out into the world. Um, and I'm, I'm always someone that thinks tell your audience less um, mm-hmm. and let yes. them draw their own conclusions. So I, I appreciate that they took it the way they did. Hell House LLC is a perfect example. Part two tries to give you this too much, like the bad guy monologues for 10 fucking minutes. Stop talking. I don't want to see leather. I don't want to see Leatherface without his mask on. I want him to be scary because I can't see it. You know, I don't want to know why this haunted house is fucking satanic worshipers. And I don't want to know why in wreck this is happening. I want to maybe have my own idea, but these people in the movie don't have a clear answer, so I shouldn't either. Yeah. I mean, I think that is kind of also obviously the genius of like the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. That final shot in it is just so iconic. I, I mean, I'm, I've always been obsessed with it, specifically just because like it gives you nothing. I mean, if you <laughs> pay, if you, I, will, I won't go that deep in that film but like if you pay attention to like the lore that they explained earlier on rustin like, Parr and yeah rustin yeah Parr like him, him him standing in the corner relates to the myth um that they're building but that is the only thing that you are given yeah i just i think that that's why that movie still lives in the way that it does i, I really firmly believe that less is more in storytelling and show me, don't tell me. And especially in horror, you know, I don't need, I just don't need it. I don't want it. Mm-hmm. Suddenly an overhead door from the attic busts open from above and scares the hell out of them. This shot is kind of iconic. I knew about this shot even before I watched the movie. Pablo holds the camera above. So his hand and the camera are up in the attic and he rotates it slowly 360 degrees so that he doesn't have to stick his head up there but they can see what's up there and right when it becomes full circle this fucking infected boy just jumps at the camera and ends up smashing the light 
and it's a great jump scare. It's very well earned. You know it's coming. You don't know when. Uh, it's it's very it's it's super well done. Mm -hmm. Angela and Pablo now in complete darkness must rely on the night vision on the camera. So Pablo can see Angela, but she can't see anything. She's in total darkness. We can see Angela through the green kind of night vision. Uh, he grabs her hand and he starts to guide her through this maze of an environment, assuring her that they're going to get out. He sees a tall, gangly figure in the distance, misshapen and sickly, and this figure stumbles forward toward them in the darkness, unaware of their presence. How? I don't know. They've been screaming. They pressed play on a tape recorder. I don't know how it didn't know. <laughs> the way I think of it is kind of what I was saying earlier, which is uh, part of what I find interesting about like the way they create the zombies in this movie is they don't really behave like what the, the cliche of like the zombie is and a lot of the time like a bunch of people will be making a bunch of commotion or there's a light in their face or there's something and mm. they're just completely like zoned out and oblivious to the world sure. up until the moment that they're not yeah um, and so i think just because they established that earlier in the film like that kind of works for me still. All right. I can embrace that. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for thanks for fixing that for me. <laughs> uh, so this figure is uh, the Portuguese girl, allegedly possessed, but clearly patient zero for whatever this infection is. Um, she's topless, wearing only like a pair of soiled panties. And again, body just kind of twisted and, and overly skinny. The performer is actually Javier Botet. This was his first film, but he was the uh, leprous hobo in um, It, uh, the, the recent ones, and the crooked man in The Conjuring 2, and just kind of went on to play creatures. Uh, Dracula in, the, in that, new, that recent movie, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. So went on to have a really cool career, but this was where this was his first film. Cool. So this creature is banging around aimlessly and they're trying to sneak past her, but Angela bumps into something and it starts chasing after them. We get glimpses of it and its deformed face. Uh, she starts kind of clamoring around and banging on shit, searching for them in the darkness. I will say that when I first saw her, I thought she was CGI by just maybe the way that she was moving, but it no, this was, I saw set pictures. This was practical makeup. It's really, really good looking. Yeah, no, the way they create that, like, the, the final creature, it, like, I mean, even, I've seen this movie so many times, and even just, like, watching it again two or three days ago, I was really just astounded by what they were able to pull off of that. Like, she, because you, you look closely, and it is really obvious that that is a person that's not CGI, that's, like, it's all practical. Um which is really insane because it just looks like the most unbelievable, like deformed. It's the thinness of this shape, the arms that are so yeah. long and thin. It's just this, this performer just has the exact right physique to play something like this effectively. And the way that, you know, the way that it moves and um, ugh, it's just, it's so scary. As a filmmaker, I'm always like really impressed by stuff like that. Like, I think I'm thinking about this now in particular, because I've, I'm like two weeks deep into uh, the casting process for this project I'm working on and like finding like you have that idea in your head of like what this creature is going to be, but then finding someone that just physically has that body 
mm. to to pull off that effect is so difficult. Super tall and super thin. Look at Doug Jones and his career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So this uh, this creature is running around screaming. Uh, so are Pablo and Angela, and they get separated, and the creature jumps and and kills Pablo and Angela. <laughs> Angela can't see because she doesn't have the night vision, but she does find the camera. She picks it up and aims it and she does see the creature eating Pablo and it runs toward her and she falls to the ground. And so the camera is now facing toward her. We hear the infected start screaming around in the building and then she crawls toward the camera slowly and then is dragged by her feet backward into the darkness and we hear her a quote from before talking to Pablo when she said, we have to record everything, Pablo, for fuck's sake. Title card, wreck with the logo on the poster and then a metal song plays over the credits and that's the end of the fucking movie. Side note, I think the credits music is so funny. It's so... It's so out of place. It like... takes me out of what just <laughs> happened so hard. I know, I think it's so funny because like, so much of that movie is like it's played so uh like straight faced and bleak and dark and then it's just like the cheesiest like it, it sounds like it would be in like a like the 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 menu music for like a motocross game from 2004 <laughs> or something like it's yes. so out of it cracks me up every time yeah yeah it um I have to say, I didn't like it. I'm going to be perfectly honest. You know, they filmed multiple endings uh, to this film. I don't love her getting dragged out into the darkness. And then that's the end. Um, it feels like a little bit of a cop out. And yeah, I mean, I get what they're going for. I, like, I agree that it's, I wouldn't say it's like, I don't know. There To me, there's like way more, like there, there's so many other images and like moments in it that are like way more compelling. Yeah. That is sort of just like a, yep, and then she's gone. And I, I, I've seen it done so many times. I can't remember if I've seen that done before this movie came out or after this movie came out, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know. But the, the whole rest of that that scene in the penthouse, like, is just works so, so well for me that yeah. I, I can forgive it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But that is Wreck, and I am super grateful that you shared this movie with me. On the podcast, we have a rating system. A movie is either a trick, which means it's okay. It is a treat, which means you loved it, or it is a smell my feet, which means it sucked. Kyle, how do you rate this movie? I am going to give it a treat. I love this movie, as I've said. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, like I've seen this movie maybe like, nine or ten times just because i think it's a really fun one to to show to people for the first time yeah um so yeah definitely a treat (laughs) you know i think the first time that i watched it this week i i put it at the low end of a trick really still appreciating why it has such a, a following and why people love it so much after the second time that i watched it i'm i'm gonna place it at the high end of a trick like almost a treat (laughs) Um, and that's, it's elevated for me by the, the, the filmmaking, the quick story and how little we find out as we go along. And also the performances, particularly by the woman who plays Angela. I think that she, again, carries it super duper well. 
it is definitely one of the best found footage films out there in a genre that is just not my favorite, you know, but I recommend this movie. I would watch it again and I would definitely share it with anybody who's just curious about found footage. I, I really do thank you for it. I just needed to see it and I just didn't. And so I'm glad mm-hmm. that I finally did. So thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you did too. I mean, I, I totally get it too, because like, I mean, I think even now still found footage isn't really uh, among horror fans in general. It's, it's generally frowned upon. Um, and I'm always trying to get people to give it more of a chance because I do think you are right that the vast majority of it is really, really stupid. <laughs> like the vast majority of found footage films are really terrible. The, I have watched the VHS movies. I just keep hoping that we're <laughs> going to get another good one and we just keep not getting another good one. Like the first two are I mean, excellent. Yeah. I, I There hasn't been one so far that I wasn't at least entertained by. There's usually like at least like one segment like one or two that I think are really fun. I actually did really like the most recent one just because like some of those segments were like a lot gnarlier than most of those movies go. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot of really, really bad found footage movies out there. It's just for me, like the ones that do hit and, and the ones that are worthwhile are so like such a specific vibe and such a specific aesthetic that I don't think you can like the, the energy of a film like this, I think is really difficult to capture in the same way in just like a standard narrative horror film. Yeah. I think there are a handful of instances that have that same, like the same pacing and the same atmosphere and the same whatever, but it's, it's just really like there, there's something about uh, like when found footage is done right. That's just so unique to me. You've made me a believer. It, you know, I think what I accepted finally about found footage in this. Okay, so like if a, if a movie starts and it says based on a true story, I know it's not based on a true story. You're bullshitting yeah. me. So found footage is the same thing. I know this isn't really found footage. And it's like, I feel like watching this movie and appreciating it has opened my eyes to just fucking let that go and experience what this genre has to offer. And so you've opened my eyes to that, Kyle. Thank you. It's like now I can hopefully move forward and just sit through found footage and and experience the intended journey instead of me pick it apart and, you know, be a dick about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like the the long-standing cliche, of, of course, is always like, well, why are they still filming? Like, I mean, even in this movie, too, like, let's be real. Let's be real. But also, I, I, I let's all right, let's uh, we have to end this. But the um, Angela continuously insisting that he tape everything for documentation because we have to prove what's going like what's going down in this building. You know, we have to prove what's happening to these people works for me and then when the the light on the camera is broken you still have to keep filming so that you can see you know like when they're in the darkness you have to have the camera on to see the light that is shining and then you have to have the camera on for the night vision so i do think that this film does a good job of justifying it many others don't you know yeah i'm willing to just kind of look beyond that overarching question yeah 
a lot of the time if it's if it's done well otherwise i think it's really just a, a matter of how you're willing to to approach it i will approach it differently moving forward kyle i can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show seriously i was really looking forward to having you and i'm so glad that you you did this where um can you tell my listeners where they can stalk you I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier or not. Um, I'm on Instagram at uh, Sosagoth. That's S-O-S-A goth, all one word. Um, That's kind of my main social media and where I post the most about projects that I have in development or projects that I have out in the world. So if if you want to see more about Annihilator or the film I'm working on now, I would say go check out my Instagram. Fuck yeah. And you really need to. I I highly recommend Kyle as a filmmaker and as just a really cool person. If you want to follow the podcast at Rick or Treat Pod on all platforms and subscribe to the YouTube channel because it's taken off and doing really well. Thank you again, Kyle. And we'll see y'all later, spookies. Thanks for coming Rick or Treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. My website, rickertreat.com, is designed and maintained by Evelyn DeVere. The show's social media content is created by my evil minion and social media manager, Stanley Martin. The Rick or Treat logo was designed by Philip Romano. Contact information and links to these artists can be found in the episode description. Check them out, they're frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well, they're coming to get you, listener. ha 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 ha!